Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. I'm at the Morton Arboretum in Lyle. Worldview is going to be here the rest of the week. It's going to be a lot of fun. We'll talk about oak restoration, the power of trees, tree technology and science. We're going to visit the Burreed Marsh, the Schellenberg Prairie, the amazing oak and maple collections. Right now we're outside the Visitor Center in front of Meadow Lake, which I never knew the name of the lake in front of the Visitor Center, but it is called Meadow Lake. And it's got lots of lilies in it, lots of lily pads. We're by some beautiful pine trees. There is a chinkapin oak that I could not wrap my arms all the way around if I tried right behind me. And it's uh, shading us while we uh, sit here and have this conversation. I hope you enjoy and come to the Morton Arboretum often. I do with my dog all the time. I'm going to try not to talk about my dog walks all the time, but I come here with my dog. We go cross-country skiing here on dog days and when there's snow. So I uh, really enjoy the Morton Arboretum and I'm glad to be here. We're going to have a conversation now about climate change and the effect it's having on trees. With me is Dr. Christy Rollinson. She's a forest ecologist here at the Morton Arboretum. Good to see you, Christy. Thanks for having me. And Matthew Lobdell is here. He is the curator of living collections at the Morton Arboretum. Thanks for joining us, Matthew. Thank you. You know, when I talk with people about the National Climate Assessment and the Midwest Climate Assessment, And they say things like, by the middle of the century, we're going to have 10 times the number of hot days that we have now. Uh, By the end of the century, our climate's going to be like East Texas. Uh, This is a radical different scenario for all of us. And I imagine for the things that are living here in the ground uh, everywhere, it's going to be radically challenging. When you hear things like that, Christy, what do you think the future is for the plants that are all around us here? Different. Different than anything they've experienced before. But I think one thing that's good to keep in mind is it's not kind of this consistent cranking up of the dial. It's every year is different. We know weather is a thing. And so while the average is going to be warmer and we're going to have more extreme days, those extremes getting more extreme one at a time, but it doesn't mean, you know, every year it's going to be this sweltering hot summer. And then, you know, we talk a lot about extreme hot temperatures in the summer, but really it's what happens in kind of the spring and fall that has a disproportionate impact on our plants and how they complete their life cycles. What's phenology? Phenology is what most people are used to tracking at the end of the winter when you're just dying for spring to come. (laughs) So as every gardener is sitting there waiting for their bulbs to come up or we're just waiting for the flowers and leaves to pop out on the tree, that's phenology. So it's tracking these cyclical annual life history events. I so, focus so that's on kind of the trees. thing you're talking about. The, exactly. The, the give and take of when the buds come out and all the important stuff going on. Yep, exactly. When the buds come out, when your fruit ripens, it's kind of a classic naturalist activity. People have been doing it since, you know, Thoreau or Aldo Leopold. They wrote about the season, so they were tracking phenology. But now it gets pretty detailed. I was on the National Phenology (laughs) website last night and trying to absorb some of the mapping and the ideas going on out there. But people are really putting it together. Yeah, and it's not just the scientists that are doing it. Scientists like I use the information, but most of the observations in the National Phenology Network are from kind of literally random people. If you can look at a tree, you can help us track how trees respond to weather and how they respond to climate change. Um, So it's this really great citizen science effort across the whole nation. And what are we learning from all that when it comes to climate? What kind of things are we applying to right now? Uh, So by tracking, you know, the timing of leaf out and whatnot, it's how we know that 
climate and climate change impacts our trees. We know that spring is happening earlier. Here at the Morton Arboretum, our collections group has been tracking spring bloom for the past 20, 30 years. And so in our own collections, we've seen spring happening two days earlier per decade, which might not seem like a lot, but when you think about a tree lives for a hundred or a couple hundred years, that means it's weeks earlier than it used to be. Spring is happening weeks earlier than when the Arboretum was founded, and that's with some of the same plants that were here at that time. Wow, that's really amazing. Uh, Matthew, your job as the Living Collections Curator at the Morton Arboretum, explain what you're doing. Absolutely. So as Curator of the Arboretum, I'm responsible for working to develop our tree and plant collections. And of course, climate change is something we need to be thinking about as we start to develop our tree collections for the future. And the tree that grows really well right here around Meadow Lake today, these Norway spruces we're sitting underneath, they might not be able to perform as well here 100 years from today as they do today. But of course, when trees live 100 years, you need to think this far in the future. Do trees tell you what they're good at by their past? Have they adjusted? Do they tell you in their rings and things that they can make the adjustment in the future? Yeah. So actually, in addition to the phenology, studying tree rings is one of the large things that my and my lab do. And so, yes, exactly. We can look at how well they grew from year to year. And, you know, for instance, one thing I have some students working on right now is we went out and we took tree cores and we're looking at the growth in the rings. And so we're going to be able to understand how much the really cold snap we had this winter impacted our trees. From that, we can do this very long-term study and then connect it to the other things where you don't necessarily have to bust out a microscope and some saws to study. Um, So, you know, Matt does a lot of tracking how the plant's looking and its overall health. And by working together, we're able to put together this better picture. I'm talking with Dr. Christy Rollinson. She's the forest ecologist here at the Morton Arboretum. And Matthew Lobdell, he is the curator of living collections here at the Morton Arboretum. And we're at the Morton Arboretum. We're right out in front of the visitor center out on the lawn uh, around Meadow Lake. And we're talking about climate change and the effect it's having on trees around us. Um, are there some losers out there that, we're, that we really enjoy now, some trees that um, we are not going to see 50, 100 years from now? Right, that's a very good point. Sometimes in addition to trees telling us what they're good at, they can also show us what they're bad at. And we had a very interesting winter where we got down to, I believe it was about minus 26 at the Arboretum. But that minimum low temperature might not actually have been what caused most of the damage we saw out in the plant collections. In this case, I believe it was actually a very warm fall, followed by a cold snap in November, which really did the most damage. So the trees that seemed to be the losers, at least from this last season, were those that just weren't able to shut themselves down in time before winter came, right? That were still trying to grow and still trying to actively put on new growth and build new roots really late into the fall. So when it got really cold suddenly, those are the trees that got the most damaged. Would you say that those are the maples? Who would do that? I would say Japanese maples are definitely a big example of that. And that's one where we've seen some damage to that, that species for these reasons over the last few years. Should people keep planting uh, maple trees? I would certainly say people shouldn't only keep planting maple trees. (laughs) If you were to rank vulnerability of trees, what would you say? Oh, of course, maples are a very, very diverse group of plants. Well over 100 species of maples. And maples grow anywhere from the southeastern United States all the way up into even some parts of Siberia, I I think. Acer Cappadocia must get up there Oh, no, that's your job. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) 
So when you have a genus like this that has a very, very broad distribution, there's bound to be some species that are going to be better suited for the challenges we have in the future than others are, which is why I like to promote really increasing the diversity we have so we don't necessarily need to pick the winners right now. So in addition to everything Matt was talking about, two things make it really hard for us to really predict what you should or should not plant. One is just keeping in mind that trees put up with an incredible amount of variability. They can put up with good years. They can also put up with a fair number of bad years. I like to say trees can put up with a lot of crap. And so just because, you know, we have one bad year or even one bad year every five years doesn't mean that tree is going to die. The other thing that makes it very, very difficult to predict what the next best tree or the next worst tree is going to be is the spread of invasive species. I think 30 years ago, nobody would have said, like, don't plant ash trees because they're not going to survive because we didn't know the emerald ash borer was going to come through and have that impact. And so in addition to thinking about how the trees respond to climate themselves, we need to think about what kind of diseases might be spreading because the range of a lot of these pests is changing with climate change. And then we also have new pests getting introduced all the time, unfortunately, and we don't know what the next one that's going to take off and have a decimating impact on our forest is going to be. So that's really why we advocate uh, planting a diversity so that, you know, if it knocks out the ash, hopefully your whole street wasn't ash and it gets, you know, maybe one in 10 trees rather than two out of three. Yeah, it's interesting to think about. I was reading some of the material that was compiled here about the number of trees that we have in our canopy in this Chicago area. And we were doing pretty well, and the number was going up a little bit, and people were planting trees. And then the emerald ash borer came, and it went down. And uh, all our planting has not offset the down that the emerald ash borer brought upon us. And that's the whole idea about planning for climate change is that, you know, nature happens in these boom and bust cycles, but it really has long lasting impacts. And so when we know things are changing, we want to ensure a smooth transition in our forest canopy by kind of gradually thinking about climate change and gradually replacing trees when opportunities presents itself so that we don't, you know, basically go off a cliff and then have to wait 100 years to recover. And um, people should all remember the pine bark beetle. You know, I saw somebody call it the greatest infestation of any insect ever. It did more killing than anything that happened, and it was 100% climate change. It's an interaction among factors for the pine beetle, but, you know, it's not just the emerald ash borer or the pine beetle. The hemlock willy adelgid, I grew up in the Appalachians, it killed 80% of hemlocks in just a few years, and these were kind of single species stands that just got decimated. Uh, We saw Dutch elm disease come through and wipe out most of the elms in Chicago. So it's not just these isolated cases and, you know, just the fact that we can come up with multiple examples, you know, off the top of our heads really kind of emphasizes how big an issue this is and how we need to think about it, incorporate it into our planning. How do we do that? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, if I knew, um, I think it has to do with keeping, you know, a long-term perspective. A lot of times as humans, we're worried about our day-to-day or year-to-year life, but trees operate at much longer timescales. So it's having a thought to the future and thinking about diversity and thinking about all of these small little impacts that really add up to determine, you know, what's best for that tree, what's best for that neighborhood. 
and then just communicating it with each other. So scientists making sure that we're giving people like Matt the information he needs and that we're also not just, you know, hiding away in the Arboretum doing these things, but making sure we're telling other people about it, too. I wanted to ask, since we were talking about climate and trees, uh, about the study that came out recently that I I think everybody saw and was talking about. If you plant a trillion trees and you could fix climate change. It was a Swiss study, and it was really kind of a mathematical think piece, I guess I'd call it. What is your reaction to that, uh, Christy? Because a lot of the headlines were, oh, well, I don't have to get rid of my SUV. I can just <laughs> I can just plant a bunch of trees. Yeah, yeah, it, it is very much a think piece. Kind of, it's the same group that did the how many trees are in the world. And one thing we talk about here at the Arboretum is it's more than just planting the trees, is you have to take care of them. Because if you plant a tree and you're just like, throw it in this mostly concrete hole, it's not going to survive very well. And then you may as well not have planted it. So, you know, there is this incredible restoration potential and potential to help mitigate climate change. But we need to make sure we're taking care of the trees we plant. And then most importantly, taking care of the trees that are already there. You were talking about, you know, the large uh, chinkapin oak that's right behind us. You know, if we plant a tree today, it's going to be 100 years before it looks like that. And those big trees have bigger impacts, bigger benefits. You know, not all trees are created equal. So if we plant a trillion trees today, it'll help us 50 years down the road. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. It's not an immediate payoff. Um, You know, one of the things I saw that's happening, a lot of countries are having gigantic tree planting days. India had one. Uh, planted a lot of trees in one day. I know Ethiopia just tried to set a record with 350 million trees in a day. Wow. And I guess your care point is the one that's the trick there. You know, if you're kind of counting on volunteers to plant all these trees, they got to take care of them. Especially because a lot of times when we do these kind of plantings, uh, we plant them relatively close together. And so in a natural forest, we assume a large proportion of those will die. But it kind of gets balanced out by the large trees and so yeah you have to think down the road and Matt was talking about about size as being a big consideration of what we choose to plant and where we choose to plant it so you have to think about um, you know long-term care but also make sure you're picking an appropriate tree for where you're trying to grow it you know if you're trying to plant trees uh, in a reforestation effort uh, say out at your forest preserve it's going to be a different kind of tree you want to plant than if you're trying to pick the next tree to put in your front yard. So I guess the conclusion we should draw from this uh, gigantic study is um, deforestation comes first. Yes. <laughs> You've got to stop deforestation because they've got the big trees and they're sucking the carbon out of the air already. And reforestation is a good thing, but it's tricky and it takes time and you got to do some thought about it. Yep. Step one is protect what you have. Um, Matt, I know that you were studying oaks in West Texas, and um, is that helpful for understanding what our climate is going to be like for these kind of trees when it comes here? It can be. I've sometimes thought of describing climate change at the Arboretum as the road to East Texas. But uh, I think that's even a little bit overly simplistic because many of the predictions refer to what we may be facing as East Texas but with snow. Yeah. Right, So we're trying to plan for a climate that doesn't necessarily exist yet or has maybe never even existed in nature to the degree that it, it could here. But I think by studying oaks and other species in East Texas and attempting to cultivate some of them at the Arboretum, we can try to determine which species do perform a little bit better and which might be worthy of further selection and further introduction as we start to plan for which trees we recommend in the future. 
Well, it's been uh, interesting talking about climate change, and I'm glad to talk about climate change with Dr. Christy Rollinson, forest ecologist at the Morton Arboretum, and Matthew Lobdell, curator of living collections at the Morton Arboretum. We're out here by Meadow Lake, out in front of the visitor center, and enjoying ourselves under a chinkapin oak. And a what kind of spruce was that, Matthew? Norway spruce. That was a Norway spruce. I, I just call it a pine tree. I'm not so good at the... Uh, right family. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for the discussion on climate change and trees. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Coming up after the break, teenage climate activist Greta Thunberg made some news the other day when she accepted a ride to the UN Climate Conference on a non-carbon producing yacht that is a racing yacht that's going to take her from Europe to New York. And we're going to hear some of the things that she had to say at the National Assembly in Paris earlier this week. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Teenage climate activist Greta Thunberg made some news the other day when she accepted a ride to the UN Climate Action Conference in New York on a sailboat that is carbon-free. Thunberg doesn't like to fly, so she'll take two weeks to sail from Europe to New York. The boat's owner says that there's zero comfort on the boat and the crossing is likely to be choppy or worse. Greta then continues on to Chile for the UN Framework Talks on Climate. She'll take a train down to Chile. Last week, Thunberg spoke to the National Assembly in France and talked about how little attention people are paying to our available carbon budget. She thrashed the media pretty good for not paying attention, so I thought I'd play her remarks right now. Here is climate activist Greta Thunberg. Bonjour, uh, je m'appelle Greta Thunberg, uh, merci pour l'invitation. <laughs> Thank you all for coming here, by the way. I have some good news and some bad news regarding the climate emergency. I will start with the good news. The world, as a small number of people have been saying lately, will not end in 11 years. The bad news, however, is that around the year 2030, if we continue with business as usual, we will likely be in a position where we may pass a number of tipping points, and then we might no longer be able to undo the irreversible climate breakdown. A lot of people, a lot of politicians, business leaders, journalists, say they don't agree with what we are saying. They say we children are exaggerating, that we are alarmists. To answer this, I would like to refer to page 108, chapter 2, in the latest IPCC report. There you will find all our opinions summarized. Because there you find our remaining carbon dioxide budget. Right there, it says that if we are to have a 67% chance of limiting the global temperature rise to below 1.5 degrees we had 
on January 1st, 2018, 420 gigatons of carbon dioxide left in our CO2 budget. And of course, that number is much lower today. We emit about 42 gigatons of CO2 every year. At current emissions levels, that remaining budget is gone within roughly eight and a half years. These numbers are as real as it gets. Though a great number of scientists suggest that they are too generous, these are the ones that have been accepted by all nations through the IPCC. And not once, not one single time, have I heard any politician, journalist or business leader even mention these numbers. It is almost like you don't even know they exist. As if you haven't even read the light latest IPCC report on which the future of our civilization is depending. Or maybe you are simply not mature enough to tell it like it is. Because even that burden you leave to us children, we become the bad guys who have to tell people these uncomfortable things because no one else wants to or dares to. And just for quoting and acting on these numbers, these scientific facts, we receive unimaginable amounts of hate and threats. We are being mocked and lied about by elected officials, members of parliaments, business leaders, journalists. What I really would like to ask all of those who question our so-called opinions or think that we are extreme, do you have a different budget for at least a reasonable chance of staying below the 1.5 degrees of warming limit? Is there another intergovernmental panel on climate change? Is there a secret Paris Agreement that we don't know about? One does that not include the aspect of equity. Because these are the numbers that count. This is the current best available science. You can't simply make up your own facts just because you don't like what you hear. There is no middle ground when it comes to the climate and ecological emergency. Of course, you could argue that we should go for a more risky pathway, such as the alternative of 580 gigatons CO2 from January 1st, 2018, which gives us a 50-50% chance of limiting the global temperature rise to below 1.5 degrees. That amount of carbon dioxide will run out in about 12 years of current business as usual. But why should we do that? Why should we accept taking that risk, leaving the future living conditions for humankind to a 50-50 flip of a coin? 420 gigatons left of CO2 to emit. And now that number is down to less than 360 gigatons. And please note that these figures are global 
and therefore do not say anything about the aspect of equity, clearly stated throughout the Paris Agreement, which is absolutely necessary to make it work on a global scale. That means that richer countries need to get down to zero emissions faster, so that people in poorer parts of the world can heighten their standard of living by building some of the infrastructure that we have already built, such as roads, hospitals, electricity, schools, and providing clean drinking water. And because you have ignored these facts, because you and pretty much all of the media to this very minute keep ignoring them, people do not know what is going on. If you respect the science, if you understand the science, then this is it. 420 gigatons of CO2 left to emit on January 1st to have a 67% chance of staying below a 1.5 degrees of global temperature rise, according to the IPCC. In the Paris Agreement, we have only signed up for staying below 1.5 to 2 degrees of temperature rise. And that, of course, gives us a bigger remaining carbon dioxide budget. But the latest IPCC report shows that aiming instead for below 1.5 degrees would significantly reduce the climate impacts, and that would most certainly save countless of human lives. This is what it's all about. This is all that we are saying. But I will also tell you this. You cannot solve a crisis without treating it as a crisis, without seeing the full picture. You cannot leave the responsibility to individuals, politicians, the market, or other parts of the world to take. This has to include everything and everyone. Once you realize how painfully small the size of our remaining carbon dioxide budget is, once you realize how fast it is disappearing, once you realize that basically nothing is being done about it, and once you realize that almost no one is even aware of the fact that carbon dioxide budget even exists, then tell me what exactly do you do? And how do we do it without sounding alarmist? That is the question we must ask ourselves and the people in power. The science is clear. And all we children are doing is communicating and acting on that united science. Now political leaders in some countries are starting to talk. They are starting to declare climate emergencies and announcing dates for so-called climate neutrality. And declaring a climate emergency is good. But only setting up these vague, distant dates and saying things which give the impression of the things are being done and that action is on the way will most likely do more harm than good. Because of the changes required are still nowhere in sight. Not in France, not in the EU, nowhere. And I believe that the biggest danger is not our inaction. The real danger is when companies and politicians are making it look like real action is happening, when in fact almost nothing is being done. 
apart from clever accounting and creative PR. The climate and ecological emergency is right here, right now. But it has only just begun. It will get worse. 420 gigatons of CO2 left to emit on January 1st, 2018 to have a 67% chance of staying below a 1.5 degrees of global temperature rise. And now that figure is already down to less than 360 gigatons. At current emissions levels, that remaining budget is gone within roughly eight and a half years. In fact, since I started this speech, the world has emitted about 800,000 tons of carbon dioxide. And if anyone still has excuses not to listen, not to act, not to care, I ask you once again, is there another intergovernmental panel on climate change? Is there a secret Paris Agreement that we don't know about? one that does not include the aspect of equity. Do you have a different budget for at least a reasonable chance of staying below 1.5 degrees of global temperature rise? Some people have chosen not to come here today. Some people have chosen not to listen to us. And that is fine. We are, after all, just children. You don't have to listen to us. But you do have to listen to the united science, the scientists, and that is all we ask. Just unite behind the science. Merci. That was climate activist Greta Thunberg speaking before the French Assembly last week. We'll hear more from the teenage school strike activist when she attends the UN Climate Conference in September. Coming up after the break, we'll be back at the Morton Arboretum and we'll talk about new technology and tree science. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. We are at the Morton Arboretum in Lyle. We're right outside of Meadow Lake right by the visitor's center. We've got a nice little tent here set up, and we're talking about trees under a chinkapin oak. And with me is Chuck Cannon. He is director of tree science here at the Morton Arboretum. Thanks for joining me, Chuck. Yeah, thanks for having me. We're going to talk about trees and technology, and I would think that here we are, a uh, tree would be a sitting duck for study. <laughs> it's just, it never moves. Exactly. It's not like an, a wild <laughs> animal or anything. Uh, how hard is it to study a tree? It's quite difficult to study a tree. I mean, we have a long history of research here at the Morton Arboretum, so we've been looking at trees and studying trees for decades. But the tools are still relatively simple, and a tree, it's a very large organism, right? It's a very large woody structure. Most of it's above your head, out of reach, and all the roots are under the ground, and you can't access those. And so, actually, even though the tree doesn't move, it's still a very difficult subject, uh, because you can't access the leaves over your head. So we're really looking at ways to gain access and samples from that canopy and from those roots anytime we want to. 
Let's talk about going underground and getting the roots first, uh, since it's so hard. Um, How do you do it? Well, you either have to have them in special growth chambers where you can see the roots and gain access to it by like opening a panel or something like that, but that's experimental setting only. If you want to do it in nature, it's quite difficult. One of the best ways is using something called a mini rhizotron, and that's basically a clear plastic tube that you insert into the ground. It's got to have really good contact with the soil, and then you let the roots grow up next to it, and then you can send a camera down that tube and collect images and so you do this through time and you can watch the roots as they grow through the year and we discover things like the roots you know they're not synchronized with the leaves so in the spring we see all the trees come out with their leaves and their flowers but actually the roots are doing different things at different times of the year and the roots for a lot of trees come out before the leaves do and so understanding how the tree is synchronizing all of this growth and behavior is very important. It seems like there's a lot of crazy stuff going on underground with the relationship with the roots and the soil and the various fungi that attach sure. to the roots. And they, the roots seem to talk to each other and the tree yeah. groves talk to each other in some way that we have no idea. But right. there's a whole universe down there. It is a completely hidden world. And it is, people have referred to the roots as the brains of the tree. I mean, it's really how the tree is kind of deciding you know, what nutrients it can access and, and how it's gaining water. And it is a wild west down there. I mean, there's so many different organisms and there's so many different layers. Like there's what is associated with the roots right next to the root skin going further and further out as you get into the more diverse fungi and insects and, you know, uh, invertebrate fauna and things that are living in there. It's very structured as well. And so we don't have a fine, detailed knowledge of that structure and how it changes through time and how it varies with different species. And so it is very important that we do gain access through tools. And so we really do need to invent better tools. And, I mean, I don't have answers for that right now, but we're starting to work more and more with engineers, uh, mechanical engineers, roboticists, uh, people who have that kind of knowledge. And that I really see it, that kind of collaboration is going to be important to create those tools that we need. Because, you know, like it was the 50th anniversary of a person walking on the moon, right, recently. And so it's that kind of coming together of having an objective, the, the moon shot. We could have, you know, a, a root shot or a, a canopy shot. We need that kind of collaboration and inventiveness to gain access. It's like undersea exploration, you were yeah, telling me. Exactly, yeah. I mean, I might be dating myself, but talking about Jacques Cousteau. <laughs> but I grew up watching him and, you know, all the incredible adventures he had and all the inventions that he used to gain access. But it's like if you had a snorkel and you're supposed to study the ocean. Yeah, you might gain some insight. You might see a few fish. You might be able to gain access to the reefs, but you really would be missing the vast majority of what's happening down there. And so we want to go beyond this kind of snorkel or the little periscope like the mini rhizotron that you might stick into the ground. And it will be challenging. I think the roots and the underground world is probably the most difficult. We can use DNA technology that's out there. You take a root sample, you take a core out of the ground, you can understand what organisms are present, which fungi, which bacteria, which uh, invertebrate fauna, but yet you don't know how they're interacting. You just know the, the residents. You don't know how they're interacting with one another in that community. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. We're at the Morton Arboretum sitting outside of the Visitor Center by a chinkapin oak. We're getting a little nice breeze here, and uh, it hits the microphones every once in a while and some nice birds and everything. 
And it is fun to be here with Chuck Cannon, director of the Center for Tree Science here at the Morton Arboretum. We're talking about technology and trees. We were underground, now we're going to go overground, and that's where all the fun stuff really is, it sounds like. Well, I mean, it, it would be great fun to study the roots, but it's easier, I think. So as I was talking about the tree being a difficult organism to study, I was doing my dissertation research in Borneo, and so I was studying rainforest trees there, and I needed to get samples for DNA analysis, but it was very involved, and I was going to remote areas, and so actually my best tool was a, a slingshot. I got very good at kind of knocking <laughs> leaves out of trees, out of the specific tree that I needed to get a sample from. But if we had better tools where we could get a leaf sample anytime we needed, you know, there's lots of reasons we might want to have a leaf sample for DNA analysis, for testing for pests and diseases, for understanding its photosynthetic or its, you know, nutrient status. There are many reasons to gain samples of leaves from the canopy over our head. You don't want to have to bring a climber. You don't want to have to bring a bucket truck every time. So we're actually using drone technology, and we're just beginning on this adventure. I mean, I think it's going to be very exciting, but we're looking at ways to hang a device below a drone and fly it to a specific spot in the canopy and grab some leaves or maybe deploy a sensor, you know, put something in the tree, like measuring pollen or measuring some kind of environmental factor. Uh, So we're looking at ways in which we can deploy sensors or gain samples with this drone-based technology. And that's in collaboration with a professor at uh, IIT, Illinois Institute of Technology. And we actually have an undergraduate here working on it this summer, and she's going to continue with that. And so working with engineers is is new for me. I mean, it's very interesting and exciting, but they have a different way of working, different way of thinking. And so it's going to be exciting collaboration. So how would you compare this to other science collaborations? Yeah, I often liken it to space exploration because it is a space that's right above our head that we've not explored and we don't understand very well. Um, and so I'll often point, you know, the moon shot. That's one example. Uh, but we're willing to kind of invest a lot of money in exploring space. And this is a space here on Earth that has a direct impact on our quality of life, on biodiversity. And, you know, trees provide structure for insects, birds. I mean, the above-ground portion of the tree provides resources and structure for the entire animal community and so i think it's something that we should invest in and so i would love to have kind of the resources to create a robot that i could throw at the tree and it could climb around and get samples and get observations and i think it's perfectly plausible you know i I think we have this autonomous laboratory running around on mars it's a mars rover yeah did it all right yeah it it, it it took the samples it picked it up it sent you to get the stuff right I want a forest rover. I want something I could send out there and six months later come back and it's got a lot of data and samples in it. (laughs) That sounds like an awesome goal. What about uh, how far we are just with drone technology right now and taking pictures of trees? uh, Has there been a revolution already just in that? Sure. I mean, that is something that we've been doing for a couple of years here and other people around the country have done work into creating the structure of the tree. I mean, reconstructing the tree digitally. So... You use photogrammetry. It's just taking a series of photos from a known perspective all around the tree, and then you stitch all of those images together into this 3D digital structure. And that's just the basics of knowledge that we need about the tree. So if we want to watch it grow through time, we want to know how it's responding to climate change or insects or pests, we need to have that baseline of, well, what did it look like 10 years ago? You know, what did its precise structure look like at that time? And how has it responded to that challenge or that environmental change? So we are using basic photogrammetry. You're just using a camera on a drone 
you fly circles around the tree, taking photos from very specific locations, and you can reconstruct the 3D digital structure of that tree. And so there are also other advances where you can use LIDAR, which is this you know, laser-based technique for reconstructing the structure. And it's mostly used in self-driving car technology these days. That's what's driving that progress, is just the demand for being able to turn our cars loose. <laughs> so it senses dimension and yeah, everything. Yeah, so it can basically reconstruct the structure around it on the fly. And this is now cheap enough and small enough that you can have a LIDAR sensor that's like a hockey puck-sized thing that you can put on a drone. And again, my collaborators at IIT have this uh, technology, and we've flown it on trees here, and it's, it's very precise. It's, it's actually quite remarkable how much detail you can get. You know, even the leaf angles. We're looking at how the leaves are angled on the tree in different times of the day. It seems like you could reconstruct a forest and mm. and, and just study the whole forest. For or sure, I mean, people do that. I mean, there are airplane-sized instruments that they fly to do entire forests, and so we have lidar data for the urban canopy. And the Chicago Region Trees Initiative has a large database. In one layer of that is a lidar layer of all of the trees in the seven-county region around Chicago. And people do it for entire forests of Borneo, for like the carbon budgets, you know, so they're, they're trying to calculate how much biomass is in a forest. They'll do these LIDAR flyovers and measure the biomass. I'm talking with Chuck Cannon. He's director of the Center for Tree Science here at the Morton Arboretum. We are at the Morton Arboretum by Meadow Lake. We've got a tent set up. We're talking all this week at the Morton Arboretum about trees and science and all the good stuff. Well, is there an area of this that you're particularly excited about? Because I, I just think the knowing of what trees are out there is exciting. You know, just the just the survey of the trees in Cook County. I was like, wow, that's really exciting. That's right. really a lot of detail and a lot of numbers. And, a, right. and that seems really useful to know. Yeah. Well, I do think we need more detail. And I'm very excited about kind of digging into how the trees are coordinating their behavior. I mean, trees are very dynamic. I mean, we think of them as just kind of part of the landscape and... They're there, and they don't really change much. But then, you know, six months go by, and, oh, it's half dead. You know, it's been infected by some pest or something, and it takes a long time for us to even notice. But if we have kind of automated ways, really detailed ways of measuring the behavior or the health of that tree, we could respond much more easily, and we could respond, we could diagnose those problems much more early. And so we could have early interventions. We could deal with those issues before they, you know, half kill the tree. (laughs) And so I'm very excited about actually using this technology. So, I mean, just like our own health, your heart rate is different than my heart rate. And just like this, you know, one oak tree's kind of sap flow is going to be different than another oak tree's, depending on where it grows. And so if we could understand how that is changing. And so I kind of envision something like a Fitbit. And so it's like a Fitbit for a tree. If you had this baseline technology or understanding of the sap flow in trees in general and you could put this instrument on there and you could kind of say oh yeah it's blood pressure or sap flow is a little bit lower than it should be and or we could you know diagnose it based upon other aspects of that tree's health it would be interesting to get this information into the hands of you know your local arborists that if they had access to data and technology that was kind of immediate then things would happen for sure i mean I, i was a university professor before and just kind of continuing to publish academic papers wasn't really sufficient to me and I really wanted to do applied work and that's one of the exciting things about being here at the Morton Arboretum is you know we're doing basic research but it can definitely be translated into useful applications and used by a wide range of people uh, who are taking care of trees. 
One of the coolest things that I've seen is an app that you download it and you point it at any plant and it tells you what right. the plant is. Uh, or it gives you at least a decent option and guess at it. Right. And then that people are sharing this information right. with each other, and you can find out about your whole neighborhood's right. information and, and different kind of plants in your community. There's something uh, kind of magical about all that. Uh, it's sure. really fun. Yeah, I mean, and it's a great opportunity for citizens to contribute. I mean, you've probably heard of the term citizen scientist, and so it really turns everyone into a scientist who has a, a smartphone and... There are different platforms, like iNaturalist is one of the most popular these days, and that's a great way of reporting observations and getting people engaged. And that, in general, is one of the ideas behind this technology, is to make it more widely accessible so that people have the power in their own hands and the ability to connect to that knowledge. I mean, so even like the drones flying the cameras, we're taking off-the-shelf drones, and we want this technology to be available and possible for normal citizens so that to me is another very exciting part of this technology is to make it you know broadly applicable uh, widely available and affordable as well i mean it needs to be affordable and so yet definitely like that app that can identify your plant and that just is continuing to build as people contribute more it just creates more and more powerful database and a more and more efficient ability to identify those plants and so just like the sap flow, if we had many, many people reporting the sap flow of their trees, you know, we would be able to know that, okay, something strange is happening in this neighborhood because its sap flow is you know, less than it should be. Or we could kind of pull all that together into kind of an understanding of how all of these trees are responding to climate change. And so I definitely see these technologies as ways to engage the public and to empower them to measure and observe their own environment. And I think it's a great thing. What is the thing you're working on right now? Tomorrow when you go wake up and go to work, what do you do? Um, yeah, there are lots of projects that I'm working on. The previous uh, interview you had with Christy Rawlinson and Matt Lobdell, I kind of work on similar topics in how trees respond or adapt to climate change. And so I'm actually looking at how different tree species exchange genes. And so, you know, our basic definition of a species is these can cross with one another and they're in the same species and these can't cross with those and they're in a different species. But oaks are quite famous for, you know, all the white oaks can cross. And so you have species of white oak like Macrocarpa that you can recognize and yet it can trade genes with almost all the other white oak species. And there's been a fair amount of debate about why trees generally seem to do this and I think it's because of their very long life spans. And like you said earlier, they don't move. I mean, they have to be able to adapt to the position that they germinated in. So where that seed germinated is where they're stuck forever. So I think being able to trade genes through thousands of years with other species that they're coming in in contact with. And so things are always changing. And I really think that flexibility, that reproductive flexibility in trees is actually essential to their ability to adapt. And so I really think a lot about how we can use that in the future because I think a lot about the Anthropocene. I don't know if that's a term that your listeners will have heard often. It's our uh, human-influenced world. Yeah, it's the future, you know, that's dominated by human activity and, you know, populations increasing, consumption's increasing, our infrastructure is everywhere. And so the future is really going to be dependent on what we do and... It's creating an unprecedented and unpredictable change in the environment. So we can't really plan on 
transporting the past into the future. We can't take those natural areas and expect them to be exactly the same in the future or, you know, our semi-natural parks and neighborhoods and things. They're going to have to adapt to completely unprecedented conditions. So that kind of flexibility, that ability to adapt is very important for trees and it's happening much more rapidly than it does, you know, without human impacts. And so I think studying this ability for trees to flexibly exchange genes among related species is very important. And so just like Dutch elm disease, we've bred varieties of Dutch or elms that are more resistant to the disease, and that's been crossing things, trees that are from different continents. You know, one of them is from Asia, one of them is from North America. You bring them together, and the offspring have additional resistance. And so I think that kind of unique combinations is going to be important, but it's somewhat controversial among conservation because... They want to maintain the purity of a species. They want to have native species. Or, and so I think what is native, I think, is going to be a big question in the Anthropocene because the habitats and the environments are going to be completely novel. And so how can something be native to something that's completely unique and novel in the future? So, you know, I think there's a lot of things that we need to discuss and kind of policy and, and how we enact these things as well. Something that lives will be good. Yeah. <laughs> something that, something the, that stays alive and does not go yeah, extinct. Right. <laughs> that exactly. would be good. That would be great. Very interesting thoughts. Thanks for joining us. Chuck Cannon, he's director of the Center for Tree Science here at the Morton Arboretum. Thanks a lot for joining us. Great. Thank you. We're out at the Morton Arboretum this week. Tomorrow we'll get into oak trees, a key part of our ecological system. There's a new study out that explains what we know about the 91 varieties of oak in the U.S., So I hope you can join us from the Morton Arboretum. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Jenny Friedland and Ashish Valentine. And a big thanks to everyone at the Morton Arboretum that made us so comfortable under this chinkapin oak right outside Meadow Lake. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ.